Hello and welcome to Millions of Screens. I'm Kate producer Leo Garcia, joined via Zoom by TV awards editor Libby Hill and TV deputy editor Ben Travers. On today's show, we're going to be talking about what Marvel TV is doing to the role of showrunner, as well as discussing the Many Saints of Newark trailer, which just dropped, uh, Succession's hinted return in the fall, and maybe even Conan's finale last week. We don't have to talk about it if we don't want to. <laughs> There's so many you guys things. Talk about he's it. gone. So many he's clicks. gone now. Well, he's not. He's, He'll be back. I mean, he's not he's dead. He's gone. Yeah. He's gone forever. We're gonna miss him. The, part of the problem was that people thought, <laughs> thought he was dead. A lot well, of people thought he was dead like based it. based on the on the tweets. It is the millions and millions of little screens. Can't you shut up? I'm busy. Boy, what a great show. All right, skipping ahead to the clicker, our recap of the biggest news items from the past week. Well, guys, two days ago. In the AM, uh, the trailer for Many Saints of Newark dropped. Uh, we all just watched it. Uh, Libby and I had the same reaction after watching it, which is just makes me want to go back and watch The Sopranos. Ben, Libby, what do you think of this trailer? To be fair, a lot of things <laughs> do that to me. Um, uh, I will say, if, if it's okay if I go first, uh, I will say that I thought David Chase was smarter than trying to make Goodfellas at this juncture, but apparently he's not. And I definitely thought he was smarter than if he was going to make Goodfellas, than casting Ray Liotta in his project to remind everyone of Goodfellas was uh, a choice that I uh, roundly disagree with. And, um, we talk a lot about how we try and stay away from the whole why does this exist about projects because, you know, we should let them be. But also, why does this exist? Like, we're all sad James Gandolfini is dead. Like, but this is beyond the pale. Ben? Uh, I'm going to try to remain optimistic about this one. Um, Good luck. Mainly because I just completed a, a Sopranos rewatch, so I am eager to delve back into the world. Uh, the one note of caution I'd make is that I do think it's of Warner Brothers, or in Warner Brothers' best interests, uh, to make this movie look as much like Goodfellas as possible, because anybody who's thinking about going to see a crime drama uh, tied to the Sopranos with no discernible stars that they recognize... Uh, and with the main hook being that James Gandolfini's son is playing a young James Gandolfini, um, they need shots to fired, by the also, way. Also, shots fired at John Berenthal. <laughs> uh, absolutely shots fired at John Berenthal, because I don't know how to pronounce his name, and no one else does either, so yeah, he hasn't quite earned it yet. But yeah, I... I... <laughs> I can't believe you're coming for Corey Stoll like that, but whatever. I am coming for Corey. Corey he... If, Anybody stood out in that trailer is like, I don't think this person belongs here. It was Corey Stoll, and I normally we didn't Corey even Stoll. see him. Where was he? Oh, he's in it. He, it's like a blink and you miss it. He's just passing uh, through, and I was like, Yeah, you need to cut him out entirely. Um, but no, I, I'll be interested to see what kind of story David Chase really wants to tell. Um, I do feel like he is smarter than remaking Goodfellas. So again, I'm hoping this is more of a marketing incentive and choice and uh, style than anything else. Um, but on the plus side, 
it doesn't look anything like The Sopranos. Like some of the screenshots you fine folks have shared with me of some of the young actors playing the characters we know and love, those look a little reminiscent, I guess, of, of the uh, original cast. But the, the very look of this new movie is decidedly different than anything uh, I saw on The Sopranos, which is a push in the right direction from my end. And then I will wrap by saying that it is never a bad idea to cast Ray Liotta in anything. So big thumbs up. Many saints. Let's do it. I thought that was true, too. And then I watched this trailer. Do we like uh, do we like Livia Soprano's uh, prosthetic nose on uh, Vera Farmiga? I mean, it looks exactly as good as the CGI Livia Soprano. So I'll let people draw their own conclusions from that. Well, moving on to something non Goodfellas. Wait, we didn't hear your thoughts at all, Leo. Like, oh, I, said, I, I said know my, you have thoughts about that. I said my right? thoughts. My thought What'd was you say? at the very end, I said, I just really want to watch Sopranos again now. I want to do oh, a Sopranos yeah. rewatch. I mean, that's the whole takeaway. That's that fine. was great news for HBO, who's got this premiering on HBO Max and starting the whole cycle over. You can watch the movie, and I'm sure the first suggested thing after you watch the movie is, do you want to check out The Sopranos? Uh, I think I told Libby this before, but I did see a tweet circulating that was like, finally, something that will explain uh, the complicated backstory and the proclivities of this character uh, I only got to know for uh, eight seasons or however long long Sopranos was. It's like, oh, now I can understand what makes Tony Soprano tick. Finally. Well, moving from HBO prestige television of yore to HBO prestige television of now, it is being hinted, leaked, past embargo, that Succession will return at some point in the fall. And this also follows on the heels of Succession writer um, Georgia Pritchett stating that it's probably going to end after season four or season five. And that uh, showrunner Jesse Armstrong has stated that uh, at the end of season three, he said, maybe just one more. And that they have a good end in sight. How excited are we for Succession to come back? Very. I tweeted about this. I tweeted about this. I told my wife how much I love her, how much I care for her, and that in earnest, the only thing I care about is Succession coming back in the fall because I need this uh, in my life as soon as possible. Uh, I have been on the record as saying it's the only good show on TV. I stand by that. And when it's not on TV, why do we even have TV? It's a slight exaggeration, but also... <laughs> breeders that was not where my mind went but good for you rube um no i i'm i i need this and i as for it ending after season four of season five like good i hope so this is not a story to spool out forever this is not dallas uh that this is this is something very different and i think um and this is much more where we're seeing TV headed. Uh, we aren't seeing as many as a, of those open-ended shows, especially in the prestige field. Um, you know, and if they do, y- you'll see much, many more, I think, shows being sold with like, we have a four-season plan, we have a five-season plan. Um, and then that getting thwarted if it turns out to be a cash cow. Because I have a lot of faith that The Handmaid's Tale they were like, well, you know, we're in and out in like five seasons. And now I don't know how long they're going to want to try and milk that cash cow as rate as uh, viewing viewers 
keep piling up. So, uh, you know, it doesn't surprise me. It actually fills me with confidence as much as I love the show and theoretically want it to last forever. Uh, that's where I'm at with it. Ben? Uh, I agree with everything you just said. Uh, it's definitely a little early to be considering any of this sort of uh, speculation as gospel, so I'm not going to really worry about, worry about it ending uh, until I'm told definitively that it is. Uh, and with that in mind, Libby, season three. There's a world in which we get Ted Lasso season two leading us all the way through September, and then succession arrives. And we just go straight from Ted Lasso into succession, and it's like, okay, the year's pretty good. Pretty you good know, TV. Then that's such a good that's such a good point, except um, you and I both know that as soon as the season two Ted Lasso screeners drop, you're going to watch all of them in a single weekend. Uh, and well, so you won't really do it. the week-long rollout. I get to live with it along with everybody else for those 12 weeks. Okay. Uh, 10 if they drop two at the start. I don't know what their rollout plan is, actually. Uh, and I, you know, maybe they'll be very protective of... Yep, Leo's confirming two at the start. Maybe they'll be very protective of the finale, and I'll have to wait until the end, and then I'll get a nice big Ted Lasso finale with everybody... Uh, and then it'll propel me into my succession screeners, which I absolutely will consume right away and then reconsume <laughs> forevermore. So. It's actually very interesting that you point this out, uh, assuming that Ted Lasso season two is going to be good. Yeah, I got to have faith. Uh, today I'm being optimistic. Optimistic all the way through. It's never going to last. Okay. We're talking about Marvel. You know... That's fair. Well, that's an no, excellent way. He's killing it. <laughs> killing He's it. killing it. Natural segues. Uh, we actually talked about this a couple of weeks ago when I think we were just talking about Loki and the idea that I, I, I think I mistakenly then caught myself refer to Michael Waldron as the showrunner even though they don't use the term showrunner. They use the term head writer and it's it's been that way uh, in in every uh, in every Marvel t- TV show, Malcolm Spellman was the head writer for Falcon and Winter Soldier, and Jack Schaefer was the head writer for WandaVision. And in, in all three series, there's only been one sort of director. So I just want to sort of have a, have a conversation with you guys about what this means for television. Why are they doing it differently? I know, especially in the case of Waldron and Schaefer, and now I guess Spellman too, they're all sort of like, after they're done with the series, they're like shuffled off to start writing a movie or movies, uh, which actually for sort of having hands in the Black Widow original script idea and then having to script her own movie. But what what is what are your thoughts on this? Is this why maybe these television shows don't feel like television shows? The cynical side of me says that uh, they the would-be showrunners of the Marvel series so far who come directly out of Disney's school of how to write a Marvel movie uh, are not actual showrunners because Marvel doesn't want to give them any ideas when they are shuffled off to writing Marvel films where they will not have any control. Um, Now, again, that's a very cynical point of view, but I also don't know that it's wrong. Um, We talk about this a lot and... And actually, it's something that has been that was recently echoed by um, Stephen DeKnight, 
uh, who the creator of Spartacus, um, when someone asked him about being credited as the lead writer on Spartacus, the creator and lead writer on Spartacus, but not the showrunner, he was like, I was absolutely the showrunner on Spartacus. Uh, if you're asking, like, why this is happening, because the person was researching a story about Marvel's move away from, from that term, um, I think it's because there are some people who want to come in and make TV more like film and give that power to producers and give that power to directors and good luck with that. Um, and he's not wrong. It, it, it If you put people who aren't familiar with television uh, and aren't interested in making television in charge of television series, I don't know that you're going to get the best product. Um, and the irony here, I think, is the fact that, you know, we are seeing more quote unquote film people come over to television and, and make limited series projects that are completely under their purview. But at the same time, like when you talk about Barry Jenkins and Underground Railroad, you know, he directed every episode, but he also was involved in the writing process. Like that was a very, that was a very, we've seen things like that before. Barry Jenkins was the showrunner of Underground Railroad. I don't know where I was going with that, but it's pissing me off um, what Marvel is doing, trying to decentralize the writer. And I think it makes a bad impression on TV and, and is disrespectful. Oh, yeah. No, I completely agree. And I, I think one of the interesting things uh, to, you know, expound on this a little bit is is the idea of ongoing series. Like, I think we'll, the showrunner really becomes uh, so much more essential to maintaining tone and uh, keeping, you know, story structure in place and, and you know, narrative momentum and, and all of the kind of uh, intangibles that help construct ongoing series uh the showrunner is in charge of a lot of that and so far marvel has made an ongoing series uh they're trying to tell us through the emmys that the falcon and the winter soldier might become an ongoing series but they have not picked up season two and... uh, to be fair they said that they thought that should go in drama series because it was more dramatic <laughs> than uh other marvel works so <laughs> which is hysterical <laughs> limited series are filled with dramas uh only really i don't remember the last time I, I, that's not actually how we're uh separating things but go uh, with god disney sorry please continue no i just i i, I it, it to me it just speaks to the business model and one of the reasons that marvel tv shows have been so exci- unexciting so far uh it's that they are built to fit into a gap like these are little puzzle pieces that are getting put in place to help kind of expand on an arc that's uh you know designed for the movies that they're going to continue to push out and release and um the tv shows aren't they can't go beyond that like they're not they will be allowed to go beyond that if they are successful and if it fits the broader game plan for the future um but they're not going to worry about that that's why they don't say you know hey, season two of WandaVision is coming. Season two of Falcon is coming. It's because they need to plot it out. They need to measure you know, everything. They need to see how valuable this turns out to be 
uh, as opposed to you know the movies, which are still in a constant flux. We're about to get Black Widow in theaters and on Disney on demand. Um, so like from a strictly money making standpoint, they need to see if their if their model for producing films is going to be sustainable into the future post COVID uh, and when streaming has taken a priority. And then they need to reexamine you know the budgets and the success of their streaming after they've made you know a handful of series uh, that'll come out over this year or the next year. Um, so there's a bunch of business reasons that that tie back into why they would empower producers and directors over a writer. Um, and, you know, I, I agree. I don't think it's a great way to make TV. I don't actually think it's a great way to make limited series because, like you mentioned, uh, you know, so many of the great ones really lean on and entrust the creative minds who are writing it to, you know, flesh it out. Uh, throughout the entire experience as opposed to hand it off to someone and then go create that vision over six hours you know creating a six-hour story is still very complicated compared to creating a two-hour story and it seems like you know again just the evidence that we're seeing on screen that marvel believes all they have to do to create a six-hour story is expand on the elements that they've already implemented in movies and that is not how you create a good six-hour story um I've been lucky enough to watch Black Widow, and one of the reasons I was even inclined to watch it in the first place was because I wanted a direct comparison, uh, a newer direct comparison to what I've been watching on TV with Loki and with WandaVision and which, with Falcon. And it was so very... This is a two-and-a-half-hour movie, by the way. It was so very obvious how they could have extended this from two hours. It was like you could easily just point at the scene and say, okay, that gets expanded, that gets expanded... That gets expanded, and now you've that's got an a episode. Like, that's an episode. Exactly. Like that's all they have to do, and that's that's the limit of their thinking at this point. And frankly, that just makes me sad. Like it makes me sad for television because it seems like a lot of people are embracing these shows and are are you know, maybe even enjoying these shows and thinking this is what TV has to offer them when it comes to these characters. And it's not. Like TV could offer them so much more and do so much better if it was actually embraced. But it's not it's not being embraced. They're uh, being very limited, and um, it may be a good business model. We'll find out. Uh, but as a TV enthusiast, I'm just constantly disappointed. It's just frustrating and sad. I will say, uh, I can't believe I spent all that time and energy earlier in the year being mad over whether Small Axe was television or film when I should have been prepping for how mad I was going to be at Marvel uh, professing that they were putting out television when they are obviously not. Leo, uh, as the as our as our mostest Marvel fan, do you have thoughts on this? Uh I mean, I think everything you guys have said is pretty much correct. Uh I will say if I were going if I were going to play devil's advocate, most I mean the head writer thing notwithstanding most limited series typically do have like at least in this year's race typically do have a writer director combo that that goes throughout the entire series so like for for mayor of east town we had craig zobel and brad inglesby uh for i may destroy you you had michaela cole and sam miller or michaela cole and sam miller in the directing uh chair so i mean and for queen's gambit obviously you had scott frank so for for those limited series, it does seem like that usually works. Um, 
but it is telling that even in interviews, Michael Waldron was saying like he wasn't on set for Loki. Like he is. And, and that's because a, because he got the opportunity to write Dr. Strange in the multiverse of madness. So they sort of like, all right, you're, you're done with scripts are finalized. You can jet off and we'll have a writer on set for alts or whatever. But like, essentially at this point, it's Kate Heron's show. And to what you guys are saying, it's really the producer's show. And they are, and they're going to make sure that it fits in line with everything else. The MCU, uh, MCU has to do. I mean, it, it's very disappointing from my perspective as a fan, only because, and I said this on the podcast before, I just want these shows to be good. And it is disappointing that they aren't good. Uh, that they that they are just they just they do just enough to sort of keep you intrigued, but they at the end you're sort of left very empty. At least the first two entries. And I feel like we're heading that way after three episodes of Loki. It does just enough to keep your interest peaked until it's over. Uh, and it, it, it doesn't feel like any one given episode was like, that was a great episode of television. Like I, 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 have, I have yet to really feel that, save for maybe what I've always called the, uh, the ghost of trauma past episode of WandaVision. Like that, that might have been the only episode where I was like, oh, this, this feels like a television episode in the fact that I can name it. And you kind of know what I'm, what I'm talking about. Uh, although I guess I could say the fifties episode of WandaVision, the seventies episode of WandaVision. And you'll, right. and you'll they define themselves aesthetically without being, uh, yes. giving you any sort the, the, of the modern, narrative. the happy ending, modern family episode of, of WandaVision. I, I don't know. I think, I think it's disappointing. I think from, from, from my perspective, it just feels it feels like an affront to television, like you said, Libby, that they're they're not sort of following the rules. And maybe that's their way of being like, hey, we're new, we're different. But it's also sort of proving that like maybe that these things have been set in place for a reason. Uh, I always find it interesting, maybe you guys can expound upon this, why television feels like the writer's medium uh, as opposed to film, which feels like a director's medium in so many ways. And, and sort of the, the way that, as you said, Libby, they're sort of prepping these writers for like, you're not showrunner, you're head writer. Now go be a writer on a movie where you put the words and then, you know, whomever is going to come in and direct. Whereas typically in television, the way that I've always ingested it in terms of comedy, you have rotating directors. And I know a lot of that is due to the way you, things are typically shot in a normal non-COVID world where you have directors coming in week to week and the directors shift. But I was just wondering what your guys' thoughts are on, on that dichotomy where the, the writing is so important in television and the directing is for some reason their king in the, in the movie world. With a film, you start to film it and the writing is theoretically done. And then it's a live thing that the director is is doing. Like we like we just said, um, in television, things are constantly moving. You aren't necessarily block shooting. You aren't necessarily filming it all at once. It's a it's a machine, and to you need someone driving the machine, um, who is at the front of the process. I think more so than at at the end. Um, this was just, I think, partially it is also back in the 
day, directing was less of a of a of an artistry. You think of television starting on, you know, standing sets. I'm thinking about like I Love Lucy and uh, things like this. There, it, it's kind of a. It feels more like a hired gun job. Um, you bring someone in who you know has a basic skill set and they you film what you tell them to film. Well, the other thing I would add to this is that a lot of this developed when when you know broadcast TV was still the predominant method of, of creating television. And when you're making broadcast TV, you are writing as they're shooting. Like you might be on episode eight or nine while they're shooting episode three or four. That's you what I was trying to, have, to say. Right. You have to have somebody who can see the big picture so that when the people are on the set making decisions on the fly, like if something changes with a location and they're like, we have to go shoot here instead of there. Is that going to work? There needs to be somebody who can say, yes, that'll work because we don't need that location for X, Y, or Z, or we're not going to bring that up or that can be, you know, where that character works if they have to do it, you know, whatever. Like they can make those decisions and they can see the big picture. The problem to me with with the Marvel methodology of this is that, yes, they're they're treating it like a film. um, And yes, they're, there is still someone who sees the big picture and it is the producers as opposed to the directors in my mind. It's that they see too broad of a picture. The thing that makes TV so beautiful and usually so enamoring and so uh, watchable week to week is, you know, they're getting the details right. Like the writers really care about the language that's being used. And because there is a lot more dialogue typically in television, uh, you know, that, that dialogue becomes so important. And with something like Loki, they talk like you would talk to Waldron and he, he says this all the time. I can't remember the exact quote. Loki's superpower is his words. is like his language or whatever. Yeah. It's talking is his superpower. And so you want to hear him talk. Right. And, and when I watch Loki, I do not get that. There are moments where Loki's, you know, loquacious nature is is somewhat entertaining and he gets a few quips off and some things work, but it feels too broad. And like those first two episodes being so reliant on exposition, it speaks to the whole nature of the problem. If you look at those episodes and you're like, we just need them to introduce this thing. We need them to introduce the TVA. We need them to set the stakes. We need to make sure people understand it. If that's your broad picture thinking, that doesn't work because you're not looking at it as an individual entry. You're not looking at it as why is this an an hour long piece of entertainment and what's entertaining about this specific thing happening in this hour. Um, So for me, that's, that's why the Marvel thing doesn't work. It's that they don't have someone who is both involved in the broad overarching element and the day-to-day grind of it all who can answer those those questions as they pop up instead they're like here's your script go figure it out have fun shooting it we trust the director to do whatever they want and if those visions don't align and if those changes that come up aren't you know uh, (laughs) as thought out or or uh you know intricately done as as they need to be you know, it creates a problem. And then the last thing I'd say on this is is that because Marvel is a machine, because so much of this is on a timetable designed with all of the other moving pieces, that these series have to come out in a certain amount of time, and then the next movie can come out, and then, you know, the next movie can come out, and all of those pieces fit together, that creates hard deadlines. And TV is good at working at hard deadlines, but if you just have to churn it out and you don't get the time to spend making it perfect, you're not going to get 
the high quality limited series that TV fans are used to seeing. You're not going to get the Underground Railroad where Barry Jenkins could stand there and think and be like, oh, what is the, what is that noise? I hear that noise. I can build that into the soundtrack. I'm going to call the guy, who, the, the composer, Terrence Plant. Wait, who's the who, who Nicholas Patel. Underground? Nicholas Patel, Buddy. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm going to call him up and talk to him about this, and we're going to build that in, and it's going to be linked. I'm going to have a visual thing. I'm going to have an audio thing. I'm going to talk to the sound mixers. I'm going to talk to composers. That's all going to be part of it. Also, I'm going to make a 20-minute episode about Fanny Briggs. Like, this is a 10-episode series. I'm just going to make one that's 20 minutes about a little kid who escapes uh, unwittingly. Like, you didn't expect this to circle back around, but it becomes essential. And it's a beautiful little episode of television that doesn't fit the form. It doesn't fit expectations. It's its own thing, but it works within the broader picture. It speaks to the themes. It speaks to so much of the creativity that makes the Underground Railroad so exciting. They don't have time to do that in Marvel, and they don't care about that in Marvel. They care about hitting the deadline, fitting the cog into the machine, and it starts to feel that way when you're watching it. It starts to feel like you're just ticking off homework boxes. And, you know, Leo, you know this better than anybody, because when we talk about some of the Marvel shows, especially as they're starting, and I'm watching, you know, the first episode, and I message you about some random throwaway thing, and then you go off on a tangent where it's like, oh yeah, that's setting up this, and that's going to set up this, and that's going to tie into this movie, and that's going to tie into the next movie. That's how people watch these. Like, they they really like, watch, like, some, some of the Marvel fans really like watching it as homework, where they're checking off the things that they expect to happen, and if they fulfill those things, then that's how they get pleasure from it, which is a mind-boggling thing for me to comprehend as somebody who loves this kind of storytelling any kind of storytelling visual audio televised movie storytelling i don't want to have my expectations met i want them to be exceeded and that's just not how they make tv and not really how they make movies either so i think a lot of what we just talked about really speaks to why we keep talking about these two like we've talked about these marvel shows a lot and we've covered on this podcast, we've covered a lot of ground in terms of what's gone wrong here. Um, and I want to reiterate, like, we're not doing this because we're just grumpy assholes who want to ruin everybody's fun. We want TV to be the best it can be. And we're interested in trying to get to the heart at what's gone wrong with some of the things that at least two of the people on this podcast were extremely excited about coming into this year. Um, and I think that TV culture at large echoes that excitement. I think, again, a lot of people want that event television. And because Marvel is in such a strong place to create it for us, um, there's a lot of people who are just going to be happy with what they get. They're going to be happy with the familiarity. They're going to just, you know, use it as the one hour a week distraction that they get from all the other stuff that they do in their lives. And they'll be happy with that. And that's fine. But there's a lot of other people like us who spend an inordinate amount of time with television, thinking about television, and uh, relying on it to to talk to us, to enhance our lives, to to you know really provide conversation with people and and inspiration to get through the daily grind. And when the shows that we have those expectations for don't fulfill those needs. Uh, to me, the only way to kind of get that back is to get to the bottom of why. So um, I'm not going to stop talking about Marvel uh, because we demand that it gets better. If they're going to keep trying, then we're going to hold them, hold their feet to the fire. I just want them to let me love it. But in order to love it, they have to do better. And and 
as a general Marvel fan, no one could be more disappointed in my uh, thoughts in this podcast than me. Like, I wish it wasn't this way. I wish that they had turned out one of the best shows of the year and one of the funniest shows of the year and another show that was pretty good. Um, but that that's just not what it was. That's just not, that's not what this was. And um, I think we're doing ourselves and Marvel and television uh, a disservice if we, if we pretend otherwise. It's one thing to love something. It's another thing for that thing to be good. Um, yeah, there's a difference. And I mean, and, and we are here to talk about that difference. In some ways, it's even letting down the 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 Marvel Cinematic Universe that came before it. Like it just doesn't, and not that everything has to live up to a certain amount, because uh, obviously there are some movies and the MCU pre-Endgame that aren't as great as some of the other ones, but these things just don't, they don't, they don't feel for all, for all the producers trying to make sure that they fit into the grand scheme. They don't feel a piece, which is the, which is the most, which is the most uh, sort of unnerving and sort of angering thing is, is that for all their careful, like we're setting up this next movie, these things sort of still feel like outliers. I don't think they they feel like they feel like things that were cut out of the films like they were like we don't need this. I almost prefer and... Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. like in a weird way because at least that was its own thing doing its own thing and didn't have to really worry about everything yeah. else I mean that's fair uh, that's fair it's a take but that's fair it's it is a take Millions of Screens is a production of the Penske Media Corporation IndieWire. Our theme music features excerpts of the classic YouTube video, Bjork talking about our TV and Willie Wonka from the Chocolate Factory. Our editor-in-chief is Dana harris Sprites, and our publisher is James Israel, and we do not have an executive editor. Rude. <laughs> of television. Um, our favorite episodes of The Sopranos. Oh, shit. Include. Oh, shit. Pine Barrens. Yeah. yeah. Funhouse. College, which is the Meadow Soprano going to college one in the first season. And millions of screens strongly endorses Made in America, the finale. I agree. The the much maligned Made in America. Justice for fucking white caps is all I have to say about that list. You can can throw white caps out. You can find us on Twitter at a million screens at Midwest Pitfire at Ben T. Travers and at Leo Garcia. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play. So leave me and let us know what you think. This is Ben, Libby, and Leo reminding you as always that you shouldn't let poets lie to you. You shouldn't let poets lie to you. Ain't nothing wrong with a couple of cold brews and a cool podcast. <laughs>